welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode eight, Systems, Society, and Recovery. Well, good evening, good day, good night. See you later, Sayonara. No, no, it's not true. I just, I've started saying that because people are watching this all over the world in different time zones and in my coaching and counseling work, I'm, you know, I talk to people in Australia. So it may be morning here, but it ain't in Singapore, probably. Anyway, so all that to say, we're here. This is our seventh episode, I believe. Is that right, Gilman? This is number eight. Number eight, man, it goes and you're having a good time. So we'd like to start with a quote, and I think Dr. Bob Weathers has a quote for us uh, yeah, this morning. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. We, uh, we, in our last episode, we talked about, uh, we introduced Wilbur's, uh, Ken Wilbur's quadrant model, and we talked about three of the four quadrants. The upper right-hand quadrant was the individual uh, objective. The upper left is the individual subjective. The lower left is the elective subjective. You can refer back to, to our presentation to get those details. But one of the themes that we picked up in the, in the last presentation was looking at the effects of trauma, which are uh, uh, typically mediated interpersonally. So those are left-hand, upper-left, and lower-left-hand quadrant phenomena and how those affect the brain. And we want today to introduce talking about the lower-right-hand quadrant. And I want to introduce it by sharing a quote that you guys will be familiar with because Ken Wilber quote cites this uh, throughout his writings and it's Voltaire during the French revolution who voiced the uh, kind of the, the uh, battle cry of all those that were uh, uh, looking to supplant the absolutist monarchy. And the, the quote was this, remember the cruelties. <clears throat> and what he was talking about there was he wanted people to, rem- it was very hard to, it's very hard for any kind of massive regime change We'll talk about levels in a, in a later conversation, but the, 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 the social and political context was evolving to the next higher level, and, and they were going to need to remember the cruelties that were perpetrated by the, by the previous dispensation, which were the, uh, the, the theocracies uh, down through all the ages. And the cruelties specifically had to do with lower right-hand cruelties. And, and what we're talking about here are, are, are collective, external measurable uh, uh, cruelties. This is another kind of trauma, but this was economic deprivation. This was uh, social class, uh, uh, marginalization, et cetera. You guys can say much more about it. So remember the cruelties will be our entry point into looking at the lower right-hand quadrant. I'll pass the baton on to my colleagues for right now. We'll just dive in today. Yeah, so so just what the little simple diagram of the four quadrants is the upper left is my body, Got to have a healthy, strong body. The upper, um, I'm sorry, upper, I'm left-handed, folks. I always mess this up. The the upper right is your body, okay? Yep. And that's that's physical health, and that's, you know, something that's super uh, attacked and toxified by by the whole disease of addiction. And then your upper left is your yourself, your soul, your emotions, your spiritual, your traumas, your your loves, your hatred, all that interior stuff. And then your your lower left is your we space, you know, it's your relational space. And I like to, you know, I, I my best friend is a dog, you know, and so I like to include that too with animals too. And there's a whole thing to be said about, you know, having pets and having dogs and, and recovery and early recovery. And she's your best friend being. too, John. Yes. Yeah, she's a pal. Yeah. 
So anyway, I'll get off the dog thing. But anyway, it's a relational world, which really, really get hurt uh, as you act out under, under the control of the addictive trance. And as you get well, you need to repair the essential relationships that you can. And you also need to create a new community, supportive communities to support your growth and be a part of that and give and take. And, and we're talking about the mirror neurons. I don't know if you mentioned that, but there's so much about how we are so connected now. And that is so important. And then the lower right, we're talking about the, it's just the, you know, the economic system, nature, all of that objective outdoor world that is the context for all of this stuff to happen. And I, I remember, not remember, Guy Duplessis is, is our colleague, Bob and I, and one of our dearest friends. Yeah. He lives in South Africa. He's absolutely brilliant. And he's written uh, books on integral recovery. And he, anyway, he's just a genius. So anyway, he sent me a, a paper one time. It was written by a neo-Marxist. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it was basically, you know, talking about uh, tribal peoples and how they've been dispossessed and their cultures have been taken away and often their lands and sent to reservations, the crappiest land we could find to put them on and stuff like that. And how the incidences of addiction are just devastating in these dispossessed, disowned, disenfranchised groups of human beings. And it was a compelling argument yeah. to reduce all the causes of addiction right down there to, to the lower right. And of course, uh, you know, that kind of oppression and dispossession and loss of identity, et cetera, et cetera, affects uh, the physical body. Yeah, your, your, your traditional uh, sources of nutrition are taken away from you and you're giving other things that your body's not used to. All of that devastation happens there. Yeah. Of course, the interior sense of belonging to a tribe and connected to the great spirit and your culture and all this stuff, that's been devastated. And the relational life is, as it begins to deteriorate, especially when alcohol moved into a lot of these things, absolutely Horrible. And so, you know, it's, it's really, really convincing, but in integral terms, we say it's partial, you know, but, but not complete. Um, no, or, or it's true rather, but, but partial. So there's a, there's a super, super, very powerful um, uh, argument about having to fix the lower right and, and just the systems and how, you know, I, I mean, I was a young person running around the cities and the apartment complexes and, you know, it's just kind of the malls and it's, it's, it's a lonely place, you know, it's, it's, there, there's so much work to be done down there and I'll, I'll, I'll stop it for there. If anybody wants to, you know, well, as, that. as one's addiction deepens, the further you go down this rabbit hole, certainly this was the case for me, the harder it is to fix it and climb back out because of some of these fourth quadrant factors. For example, I had a really hard time, sustaining employment when my addiction really set in when I was in the depths of this thing I couldn't stay sober long enough to hold a job and that caused all kinds of economic problems I, I couldn't afford things I couldn't pay my rent I, I had a lot of problems there and the longer that employment gap went on of course the less desirable you look to employers in the future and that makes it even more difficult to find back out of that rabbit hole uh, people who for example have DUI or other oh, other boy. things on the record. It just makes it hard to get all these other factors back in place. And so when you struggle to get back into society to get money to pay your bills, you feel just worse. This is upper left now. It affects the upper left quadrant because you have no no ability to get yourself out of it because of these lower right quadrant factors. Um, Despair also, and hopelessness. Despair yeah. and hopelessness. There's the self-esteem issues that come from, this is largely our society and our culture too, but we define our identities and our worth based on 
our employment and our status. And, you know, for some people, the, the amount of money in the bank and these lower right quadrant things um, affect your relationships with people and uh, your, your psychology, your perception of yourself. Uh, and so getting oneself out of addiction requires oftentimes a lot of really hard work in getting through these things too. You have to continue to try and rebuild there. Now, again, in my case, the spiral to recovery involved starting with the daily practices and doing some of the other things, exercise in particular, along with meditation every single day to rebuild my upper left quadrant, my self-esteem, my ability to create relationships with people, which eventually led to uh, being able to repair some of the things in the other problem in, in the lower right quadrant, finding employment, starting to rebuild my bank accounts, yeah. pay off my debts, etc. Um, but without that, you slide just right back down into it. And that keeps people stuck. Yeah. When we were, when our house here was a, a treatment center for a small treatment center for a number of years, we had, uh, we had a lower right quadrant expert and that was my assistant Heidi. So did you get the students and okay, what's the situation here? Well, I've got this court date coming up and I don't have a driver's license. I got all this debt. So we start, we start writing the judges and say, you know, we're in treatment. This is what's going on. And, and can we, your honor, can we, you know, we can push it back so we can finish treatment. And usually the court system really, you know, pro that they'd rather you be in a treatment center than in a jail. It costs a lot less and there's some hope, you know, of actually getting better. And I need to send my first check to start paying off this debt. And, you know, I need to do whatever I have to do to get a driver's license. You know, they have things, I don't know, it's all over in California where you have to blow into a thing if you're an alcoholic and you've been busted for a couple of DUIs or something, even start your car, you have to be sober. There's all this stuff. And 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 I found that just having somebody there working with them and starting those first few steps instead of just going, oh my God, there's nothing to be done. Just take a, a first step in the right direction and start to correct these imbalances and all the messes that have been made in the lower right quadrant was really inspiring. And people go, okay, the journey has begun. You know, the, the wheels are starting to roll. We're getting down the road. It was, uh, it was inspiring and Fun to be a part of that. I feel like that society uh, uh, bears responsibility. And I think the lower right-hand quadrant really draws that piece in, in terms of social justice and so on. You were referring earlier to Guy Duplessis and the article he sent you by the neo-Marxist. Guy was the one that turned me on to the work of Bruce Alexander, psychologist up in in Canada, who uh, wrote a book called The Globalization of Addiction, which really addresses lower right-hand quadrant components of addiction. But specifically, uh, what I was most impressed by with Alexander's work is his work with what was called Rat Park. And so he took uh, rats that were addicted and put them in an experience, uh, rich, uh, a stimulating environment, and or took rats that weren't addicted and put them in a rich environment and exposed them to cocaine. And very interesting, (laughs) rats that are in a rich environment, I'm talking about a rich environment, environment of things to do it would be like stimulating activities and connection with one another and good light etc you put them in an environment they're not susceptible to addiction they don't get addicted yeah and if they are addicted part of their treatment and their resolution of addiction is being in the right kind of environment and so i i liked what you just said john is that is i remember reading a statistic in the last year or two that for Every dollar that we spend on addiction treatment, we save $7 that are otherwise spent on incarceration and hospitalization. 
And so we've got a crazy priority, I think, and this is another social issue, at least in my view, got a crazy priority where we'll spend money building new prisons and we'll, uh, we'll fill our hospitals with people that are dying of addiction, uh, uh, but we won't, treat, we won't treat addiction. We won't treat it in a primary kind of way. Reminds me of Bruce Alexander's work. Is like, can we get our heads out of the sand? I'll be kind about this. And begin to address what can we do to pump resources into communities across the country, create social programs, um, do the, do a, create a human park, so to speak. And the dividends are, there's, they're undoubted from the research. We just haven't gotten to that place yet. We still, we still moralize and legislate against addicts. And, uh, and it's and understandable. I, I understand the human reflex for sure in that. But in the process, we shoot ourselves in our own foot. We don't really. Yeah, and, and then, you know, the whole system is so broke up. But, you know, the for profit healthcare system, you know, it shouldn't be for profit. You don't, you don't treat granny because you can make a buck. You know, you treat granny because she's a grandmother and she's right having our love do. and support. Yeah, you know, right. and, and the for profit prisons and the for profit, all this. Yeah. Just, yeah. My God, some things are great for profit. You, know, you want to sell iPods or whatever, that's all good. Well, but there's certain things you don't want a for profit Marine Corps. You know, you don't want a for profit police department. You know, how much you're going to buy? The fire, can you manage the fire department? How much money you have? Quick, give me a credit card. We'll, we'll respond. You know, yeah. it, what? It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and, you guys and, ever read the book Jennifer Government? No. By no, a fellow no. named Max Berry. It's a. Uh, interesting kind of speculative near future science fiction book about a society where all that is taken to extreme and uh, the police departments and the government and everything else are private for profit institutions and the ramifications of that story. The ramifications of what we have now, basically it broke, but anyway, Jennifer government, Jennifer government. Yeah. It's a really interesting read, but what you were building on the happy rat, you know, the happy rat environment during the Vietnam war, there yeah. were like hundreds of thousands of soldiers that were getting addicted to heroin over there just to cope with the horrors of that war. And they thought then they were going to come back and we were just going to be flooded with all these heroin addicts. Right. And oh my God, what do we need? We have a treatment center. How are we going to cope with this? Throw everybody in jail. And they came back and it, the, the, the problems that they were predicting really didn't materialize because mm-hmm. when people got back to hometown USA and got to their families and got back into the world, they stopped taking heroin. By and large. Now some didn't. Yeah. But the majority did. Yeah. And again, that is, um, it's such a argument for folks, let's figure it out. You know, yeah. let's figure out how yeah. to have a, uh, a healthy world that's not, I mean, profit's great. Okay. Wonderful. But it, that is, that is, is that we build our civilization and then we build our lower left quadrant on wisdom. Yeah. You know, yeah. wisdom. You know, and somebody once said, my religion is wisdom. And I went, oh, that's, a, that's a pretty good religion. Yeah, I could buy into that, you know. So, so that has to be the thing. And and if we want to get into the lower right uh, situation in the United States, because you know that's a perspective that we're speaking from, and I know a little bit about uh, some other countries that I've visited. But it's just awful, you know. It's just uh, and Obamacare opened it up to you know the insurance companies have to pay for a drug treatment even if you have a body before you start buying insurance because you know because of disease, and so that. That allowed a lot of people jumped on that wagon because there was money to be made. I suppose that's good. And now we're, you know, the beginning of the Trump era and their, you know, their main promise is to destroy Obamacare and, you know, you destroy it, replace it with something better. I'm fine with that. But what's going to happen? And so that was a that was a huge kind of a nudge in the right direction 
uh, still a, a lot to be done, but, but generally it's been, uh, when I wrote my book, I think I said, we said in 2005, like $190 billion, $195 billion were spent on uh, drug rehab and treatment. And in that year, and in the same year, it had been like $98 billion uh, on, uh, was spent on cancer uh, treatment. And that, you know, with that $198 billion, only like 10% of the people actually needed treatment got it. And that treatment's not very effective, yeah. you know. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, John, what, what something came up for me, I, maybe you guys saw this, came out last year by, by Michael Moore, the movie Where to Invade Next. And he goes to Europe and interviews people in Portugal, Scandinavia, Italy, and so on. And the things that we take for granted here in the U.S. as just being the way that it has to be are so upside down from, uh, these were, as I said, Europeans. They look at this and they just scratch their head. Our approach to the ratio of work to, to leisure our approach to medical health care, our approach to treating addiction, every one of these has taken on where to invade next. It really blew my mind in terms of just looking at it from a different perspective. If you're embedded in this culture and you've grown up in this culture, it really looks like this is the way things have to be. It is not the way things have to be. I'm right with you, John. Yeah, and, and until my 30s, I had lived, you know, like half my life outside the United yeah. States. I spent a lot of time living abroad, and now I'm getting older. It's been more, but I still travel a lot, you know, yeah. and, and abroad and have lots of friends in uh, uh, the, the I-Awake world and the yeah. recovery world. And so I get a lot of feedback, and and, uh, and there's in Europe, too, you know, they have uh, done some really good things that we haven't done yet, but they're still struggling, and the whole addiction thing, the whole medical field has absolutely been a horrible failure. Uh, to address addiction in the United States, uh, there's this huge plague of opioid addiction going on in the Northeast, especially, but it's everywhere. And they said that 65% of everybody, heroin users now were, were uh, driven to addiction by prescriptions from their doctors who just don't get it, you know, yeah. or, and some were just being criminal, but I think I, that's, that's a really ugly thought. I think a lot of it was just ignorance, you know, uh, they just didn't yeah. know and they I, were taught. John, I live in Orange County here in Southern California, and, and our county is the number two county in the entire United States for opioid-related uh, deaths. Oh this God. is all uh, prescription medications. The number one county, because I do know of the Northeast because I've done work up there, but the number one county is, uh, uh, the, is it Dade County in, in Miami, in Southern Florida. The number two county is Orange County. So it's just to suggest it's across the nation, and if it's not opioids, then it's the methamphetamine a scourge of, of everything in between here in the Northeast. Oh, I see. I see. I go into places of employment. I saw a guy in a grocery store here and, and Wayne County was obviously a meth addict, you know, he yeah. was like, he was paranoid, had all the scouts and it was like, he went to the line and then he got freaked out and he ran out and he was, you know, he was all shriveled and, and uh, you see it everywhere. And I asked you know, the cop, the local sheriff, who's my friend, I said, do you want me to report this? Mm. When I see this, he goes, you know, we really can't do anything unless he gets in a car, then blah, blah, blah. And finally he just said, John, just tell me. We'll deal with it, you know. So that just shows you kind of the despair of trying to treat addiction as a law enforcement problem. And, and obviously it is a law enforcement problem, but just that's just one one quadrant, if you will. You know, that's, that's kind of doing our, the lower left, lower right thing. It, uh, there was a, a Chinese anthropologist that came to the United States and studied American cultural patterns for a number of years. At the end of his study, he was asked to, to summarize, if you could put in one phrase or one term what most characterizes the U.S., and differentiates it from every other country on the planet, what would be the term? His term was self-reliance. 
yeah. our individuality. Absolutely. You start to think about the way that we individualize addiction, and there's great value in doing that. Absolutely. Back to partial but not complete. But the way that we individualize it, I, I think one of the salutary impacts uh, or influences of really taking the lower, lower right-hand quadrant seriously is it opens up the heart of compassion. That when you look at that, you look at uh, individuals who I'm, I'm thinking of, of sitting in a group with people that are gay, people that are of color, people are there. How can I, how can I have this individualistic view of their addiction and their recovery uh, and not take any uh, heed for whatever's, whatever's going on in the lower right-hand quadrant? Economic level, socioeconomic status, race, religion, all of that stuff. So I really find it really actually is a kind of a, a jumping off place for me to move into deeper compassion and, and I guess there's a, there's a message in here, and John, you've been articulating it too, is that for those of us that work in the field of addiction recovery, that we really need to be fiercely advocate, uh, advocating uh, yeah. for our clients, including in the lower right-hand quadrant. That, my background's in psychology. That is the quadrant that is most, uh, most commonly neglected, for sure, in my profession. You'll get people in my profession that have got their upper right, the upper left, and the lower left. Very few people in my profession have any attention given at all in their training or, uh, or building out uh, intelligence yeah. in the lower right hand No, I'm, I'm exhibiting. I was trained as a therapist. We didn't learn diddly squat. No, we, don't. we might have learned diddly, but definitely not squat. And that was probably, we were probably a little more progressive than most schools. Yeah. Uh, yeah, learned were. a little bit, but very not, not very much. And that's what shows up yeah. in your office all the time. You know, it's yeah. like, you don't learn anything about it. And that's what you deal with 80% of the time. So, and I was going to add, you know, from kind of the Buddhist perspective and Christian perspective and, and, and recovery perspective, you know, the, the, the thing for the Bodhisattva vow, nobody's enlightened until we're all enlightened. And Christian says, nobody's saved until we're all saved. Um, nobody's sober until we're all sober. Or you want to just say an economic justice, nobody's wealthy until we're all wealthy. Yeah. Got it? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Wake up, people. It, we're all in this together. And until we deal with that, we're going to have nothing but wars and problems and, and this ongoing thing. And there's just too many of us now bopping around the planet and too much, you know, uh, technology and awful things going on. We do not get it together and love one another and realize that everybody needs a shot at dignity and education support and healthcare. And not just all that right-hand quadrant stuff, but also interior development yeah. ongoing for all of us. And we recognize that we're, we're just going to be, you know, we're just going to be in a lot of trouble. And uh, that's why I think that what we're discussing here and the work we're doing here is actually has wider ramifications and mere recovery, which is one of the worst problems in the world right now. I call it the fifth horse of the apocalypse. You know, it's just enormous. But this needs to expand out to, to everything we do. Part of the problem with resolving that fourth quadrant and really getting the attention that we need there is that so many people, and again, I'm speaking from the perspective of, of a U.S. citizen here, but Part of the problem is getting everybody to agree on what needs to be done because in the lower right quadrant we're we're dealing with everyone and without jumping the gun and getting too deeply into levels here because that's for another episode not everybody not everybody agrees on on what the right solution is and won't unless we continue to work on evolving you know right now there's there are a lot of people out there who who believe that well i got mine jack we don't need to help you and yeah. that's a big part of why other folks continue to suffer and why we can't all come together to take the actions that do require everyone to focus on. We're not enlightened until we're all enlightened. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and who, who actually suffers more, the victimizer? You know, I mean, who is spiritually more screwed from the concentration camps? The SS guards who actually did it or the people ordered it or the victims? You know, in one case, you could say the victims really got all better. But, you know, then, then the people that are actual oppressors, you know, so you can be on top. You can have all the money. You can have the gold plated everything or solid gold toilet or whatever these things are that are seen. But if your soul, you know, Jesus said, what is the profit of man if he gained the whole world with his own soul? You know, you think you're winning, but you're not, you know, ultimately you're losing it. But what really matters most. So. You remind me of a story. Uh, uh, it may be apocryphal, but it's attributed to uh, uh, the Tibetan Buddhists uh, during the time of the communist uh, takeover of Tibet in the late 50s. They came into Lhasa and they invaded a, 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 one of the monasteries there. And all the all the Buddhist monks had uh, committed suicide, and and the message uh, uh, that they wanted to give is that they didn't want the communist soldiers to have it on their conscience that they came in and killed the Buddhist monks. So the monks did it themselves. You want to talk about bodhisattva? Isn't that amazing? I don't want you to have this on your conscience. And so, I'll... God, that's that's yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty high level of. Uh compassion. And it's true. You know, it's like, ultimately, uh, I used to uh, use this as a teaching story. And, you know, the question was, uh, just using something very obvious, you know, how does a Jew forgive the Nazis? Okay. And saying you're, this is not an academic thing. This is like your family was hauled off, you know, in, in boxcars and hauled to concentration camps, which were there to exterminate you know, your culture, your people, and your grandmother and your grandfather, they died, they suffocated death on the, on the boxcars. Uh, your, your children, your wife uh, were killed and were hauled off, stripped and put into big, massive gas chambers that were supposed to be showers. And, you, you know, you survived somehow, something. You had some skill they wanted to exploit or whatever. How do you forgive that? And... The, you know, the, you know, people raise their hand, well, you realize, you know, that you have the same capacity to be an SS guard. You know, we all have the capacity to kill and be sadistic or something like that. I said, well, yeah, that's true, but I never did that. Maybe I could have, but I didn't. So, again, how do you forgive that? And so the only, and, and this is talking about a deeply spiritual lesson, it gets back to what we said earlier, but the only point that this can can really happen is when you get to that level or that depth where you realize that, oh, I am the Nazi. I am the Jew. And I've been doing this to myself the whole time. Oh, God, forgive me. I forgot. God. And, uh, and I think at that level, of depth of that level of the spiritual reality that, that we reach in our practice, you know, the um, upper right and, and these quadrants combined that we can really begin to come back as an individual and see things in, in a much different and deeper light. And we go, okay, it's you are me and I am you, you know, the Beatles said it, you know, way back when, and now we've, you know, we're kind of going to this time of stress where it's, you know, it's all about nationalism and me and greed and, you know, I got mine and you, ah, we got to get beyond that. You know, we got to get to that place that nobody's sober. 
until we're awesome. Nobody's recovered. It's not mere sobriety that we're talking about here. You know, we're talking about waking up, showing up, growing up, cleaning up, all of that stuff, and being the people that we need to be to bring in a world that is fit for those who come after us, and not just humans, but all the life forms on this planet. So that's that's the challenge, and and uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of the depth that we need to go to. And you can't, you know, you can't. You can't hit that all the time, but if you hit it often enough, it begins to inform and stabilize and that awareness. And then we fall into our little ego games and blah, blah, blah. We do all our stuff. Yeah, we're still human. But you can bounce back quicker when you realize that. And, and, and it's not a, it's not a um, getting off the wheel of suffering, but it's a call for absolute total responsibility. Yeah, beautiful, John, what you're sharing. There's so much work in, in my field of psychology. There's so much attention being given to burnout and uh, what's called vicarious traumatization, you know, therapists working with individuals, most of whom have experienced significant trauma. How do you not carry that yourself and, and, uh, and eventually experience complete decimation? And, and uh, it was, I thought of it earlier, Doug, when you were talking, it requires our deep, deep fidelity to interior practice. The only way that I can intend to the lower right-hand quadrant, the cruelties of the lower right-hand quadrant, is to give myself over fully to upper left hand quadrant uh, uh, discipline and practice. That's the only way. And I, counsel, I counsel therapists in training, you've got to attend to this dimension, mind, body, and spirit. And if you don't do that, you won't make it for five minutes in this field because on the firing line, it will take your ass out. That's it. Yeah. And you'll become just part of the problem instead of part of the solution. You'll just right, be crushed by it. That's right, People John. who are committed to that lower right-hand quadrant work to reforming the society we're living in and making things better for everyone and for the next generation uh, face a significant risk of that. And that's why it's particularly important to do it. Um, it's frustrating when the really difficult changes that we're trying to make in this world seem not to go anywhere because there's so much resistance to these things and you do what you can to help make the world and there's resistance everywhere. People don't like your ideas, people ridicule what you're doing. You try to understand and, and dialogue with people about things to understand their perspectives and where they're coming from and to come to mutual understandings. And you're met with resistance that can be incredibly demoralizing and the strength that is built through not only a meditative practice, but uh, the resilience and the grit built through a physical practice and through all of the other integral practices that we do are just essential to staying the course and making the world the place that it needs to be for all of us to continue to live and for our children to continue to live. Yeah. You guys, may I share a poem just as we wrap up? Um, you bet. It's to this point. You might be familiar with this by D.H. Lawrence. It's just called Healing. You just reminded me of it, Doug, as you were speaking. He says, uh, I am not a mechanism an assembly of various sections. And it is not because the mechanism is working wrongly that I am ill. I am ill because of wounds to the soul, to the deep emotional self. And the wounds to the soul take a long, long time. Only time can help and patience and a certain difficult repentance. 
long, difficult repentance. This is the last part. Realization of life's mistake and the freeing oneself from the endless repetition of the mistake which mankind at large has chosen to sanctify. Wow. Thank you. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Beautiful. Well, I think that is a, uh, a good place to wrap this up. And uh, thank you. Uh, and Bob, I love that. You're, he's always quoting poetry. And that's like, every time you do that, I go, I got to start memorizing my poetry. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, any, any closing, anything from anybody? Oh, yeah. All right, guys, we love you. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five star rating.